Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles out. We're going to open to John chapter 7. It says, After this Jesus went about in Galilee, he would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks of his, on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, 
Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You know, I find it interesting as we come into this passage that they're still talking about the guy that was healed on the Sabbath that we looked at back in chapter 6. And which means that this argument has been going on for six months. It's about six months later, a different time. And not only that, it's in a different place. It's not down in the area of Judea anymore. It's out in the Galilee because after, the, after Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath and the religious leaders took issue with it, they decided that we need to get rid of this guy. We need to put him to death. And so Jesus stopped going around Judea and spent a large part of his ministry out in Galilee. And the reason he did that is it's not time for him yet. He knows he's going for the cross, but he's going to the cross at the right time, at the Father's timing. Right now, it's not that time yet. And that's why when his brothers asked him, he said, look, if you, if you really are what you say you are, go show the world. Jesus said, look, it's easy for you to do that at any time. It's not my time yet. Because when I show the world, they're going to kill me. And it's not quite the time to do that yet. They're seeking to kill him. They're denying it at times, as we saw in the passage. They said, you've got a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Right after that, the other people said, hey, isn't this the one they're trying to kill? <laughs> Why is he talking so openly? And they're not doing anything about it. And, and so they are pursuing him. They're trying to find a way to, to take care of it. But it's interesting. This thing that they've been arguing about for six months, whether or not he should heal the guy on the Sabbath day. That argument is still going on. That takes place within a bigger argument. And the bigger argument we see all through chapter 7, and that's the argument of who is this Christ? Who is Jesus Christ? And that's what we see all through the passage. Repeatedly, John is showing us what people thought, what they said, what they're mumbling about, and what the reactions were to who Christ is. The brothers, right off the bat, we see that it says that they don't believe in Him yet. They will come to believe in Him later, but they don't believe in Him yet. Um, when we get to verse 12, it says there's much muttering about Him among the people. Some saying He's a good man. Others saying, no, He's deceiving the people. A couple verses later, it says the Jews marveled at Christ's response, at His teaching, because they said this man has all this knowledge, but never having studied uh, at their official schools. And so they marveled at Him. When you get a little bit farther uh, up into verse 26, it says, Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? And then in verse 31, people said, When the Christ comes, is He going to do more signs than this? It's got to be the Christ. And so you're seeing this big argument back and forth of some people saying, No, it's not Him. Other people saying, Yes, it is Him. And I find it interesting that that's all happening around this idea of the Sabbath. Because when we look at the Sabbath, Christ, Christ is the Sabbath. You know, when you look back at the Sabbath, we see that it kind of started because God created the world in six days and then He took a rest. So there's a creation principle that's bound in there. But it didn't really get a lot of traction until the days of Moses. In the days of Moses, when God gave Israel the law through Moses, 
Then God commanded it for His chosen people, the nation of Israel, and had stiff penalties for not keeping the Sabbath, not obeying the Sabbath. Why would a day off, when you look at what God's doing, He's saying, look, this is going to be your day off, the day that you're not going to work. It's going to be a day of rest for you. It's going to be a day, a holy day to you. A day where that's just set aside for their rest and relaxation and worship. Why would that carry such stiff penalties? Well, I'm certain that the reason that that carried such stiff penalties is because it does much more than that. It shows us a picture of how we become right with God. Think about it. Israel. For a person of Israel, one of God's chosen people, to be right with God, what did they have to do? They had to rest. They had to rest. Not work, but rest. And that becomes crucial as we look on farther into the Bible as things unfold and then we go into the New Testament times because the New Testament is going to look back on the Old Testament and say, look, as the people of God, do we work to become accepted by God or do we rest to become accepted by God? You see, rest carries the idea of recognizing that we don't have to work for something or to accomplish something. We are going to rest. In fact, when we get to Romans chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, it says, What does the Scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in Romans, the Apostle Paul is saying, look, look, let's take a look at Abraham's life. We know that he was right with God. What made him right with God? It says, the Scripture says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't that he worked, it was just that he believed. And that's really what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is about trusting God to provide for you. Don't go out and work today, just rest in that belief. Now it says in the next verse, Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he says, what do we find in Abraham? We find that Abraham believed God, And God credited to him, God gave to him a gift, which is righteousness. And so Abraham got his gift, not by working for it, not by trying to accomplish or achieve his own salvation, but just by resting in God, by believing in God. Then it goes on from there and it says, look, if he would have worked for it, it wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be a credit that God gave to his account. It would be his wages. It would be what was due to him. But Abraham didn't get what was due to him. He got a gift from God, the righteousness of God. He got as a gift. And then it goes on to quote David also. And it says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. David acknowledged in that scripture that we receive the righteousness of God apart from any working on our behalf. It's only through faith in Christ. And so that's why the Sabbath was so important because it pointed to the fact that our righteousness that we receive from God comes not through our own works. Just as we even quoted it last week in Ephesians 2.8, it's by grace you're saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. Titus 3.5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. It's, it's apart from our works and we actually have to get to the point where we stop working. Just like the Sabbath, you have to stop working and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, when He was on that cross, He said, it is finished. The work for our salvation is done. And we just need to rest in Him. 
That's why in Colossians, when they were having trouble with people kind of judging one another on what they were participating in, he would say this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Some people are observing a Sabbath, that day of rest. Some people aren't observing a Sabbath. Now, in the New Testament era, we have what we call the Lord's Day, which is a celebration. But even the Lord's Day wasn't a day of rest because the Lord's Day was on the first day of the week when Jesus rose again from the dead. And you know what? The Christian culture hadn't really affected it at that point. It wouldn't be for centuries until we start getting Sundays off. When Christianity would impact its culture to a large degree, then we would get to a point where we would have Sundays off. But the first day of the week was always a work day. In fact, that's why Christians were often looked at kind of out the corner of your eye or what's going on with those guys because they were having these weird early morning meetings and late night meetings because their worship services were happening before work and after work. And so it wasn't really a day of rest. It was a day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is our rest. And that's what in Colossians when he's talking about it here, he says, look, some of you are you're judging one another on whether or not you observe the Sabbath. And he says, if a Sabbath helps you to focus on Christ who is our Sabbath, that's okay. If a Sabbath kind of binds you back to the dispensation of law and keeps you from recognizing your freedom in Christ, then don't do it. But he says the Sabbath was just the shadow. And what is the reality? The reality is Christ. And we've seen that over and over and over. We've seen how the shadow was the rock in the wilderness that gave him the water. The reality is Christ. The shadow is the manna that God provided in the wilderness, the bread that brought life. And the reality is Christ. The things that we see in the Old Testament, they all mirror forward and look to the reality being the substance is Christ. And you know what? In the middle of this argument on the Sabbath, Christ is at another feast and it's the Feast of Booths. And he's going to show them again how the reality of the Feast of Booths is found within himself. You see, the Feast of Booths, one of the things that they would do is every day they would have kind of a little parade that would go out to the springs of Gihon. A priest would take a golden pitcher and he would scoop up some water in the pitcher and then he would take the pitcher back to the temple and there would be kind of a parade of celebration along the way. There would be a choir singing Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 3 which says, With joy you draw water from the well of salvation. And so they'd be singing about the salvation of God as they drew the water from the springs of Gihon and they head back to the temple. And then the priest would pour out the water upon the altar. And it's right at that point where Jesus stands up and says, If anyone's thirsty, seeking that satisfaction, let him come to me and out of him will flow rivers of living water. Jesus stands up and says, look, everything you're doing right here with the priest with the golden pitcher and getting the water and bringing it in and pouring it on the altar, it's about me. It's about me. When they were doing that, it was partially in remembrance for what happened with them back with the rock in the wilderness. That Moses struck the rock in the wilderness and then the water came out. Next time he's supposed to just speak to the rock because Christ only once smitten for our sins. And then the next time the water would come out and God would give them the water that would give them life in the wilderness. But part of it also was looking forward. It's looking forward to a time when the Messiah comes back and they experience that living water again. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 14 and verses 8 and 9, It says, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, 
half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. And so as they were doing this with the water, this ritual, it was looking back to when God provided the water of life for them in the wilderness. It's looking forward to when the Messiah would come and the water of life would flow freely from the temple. And Jesus is saying, this is about me. Now, (laughs) that really creates the dilemma. And the reason we've been arguing about this for 2,000 years, who is the Christ, is because there is a lot on the line. And He didn't really make it easy for us. If you can make a statement about him that is not overly involved, it makes it easier to concede to. But you see what Jesus is claiming to be is the God that was with us in the wilderness and the God that is coming for us in the future. And the Jewish people recognize for you to say you're the son of God, it makes you equal with God. He was not just claiming to be a good man or a good teacher. He was claiming to be God in the flesh. That's why there's such argument. Is this person really the son of God? says there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no. He's misleading the people. That's really what it comes down to. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. If he says he's the Son of God, and he is, well, then he's the Lord, and you bow down and worship him. But if he says he's the Lord, the Son of God, and he's not, then there's two options left. If he's really not God, but he thinks he is God, he's lost touch with reality, and that does not make a good moral teacher. But then there's one other option left, and that is that he is not the Son of God, and he knows he's not the Son of God, but he's saying that he is the Son of God, and so he's a liar. And that's why these people were having such a struggle with it, because somebody is saying, hey, he's a, he's a good man. And they're like, he can't just be a good man. He's saying he's the Son of God. So either he's crazy, or he's wicked and deceitful, or he actually is The Son of God. And that's exactly where right in the middle of this passage, Jesus tells them, don't judge according to appearance. Judge right judgment. And that's what we want to consider here this morning is this idea of judging right judgment. The first thing that we need to do as we try to make right judgment is we need to recognize bias. Everybody has bias when it comes to any different issue that they're talking about. Everybody has their own glory, their own way that they see themselves, their own personal reputation, their own image, uh, how things are going to affect you. You're never without bias. And that's exactly what Christ points out. He says, if anyone seeks their own glory, then they're not to be trusted. That's the point. When we're looking at judging rightly, making right judgments, trying to discern truth from error, trying to see clearly who Christ is or what the truth is in a given subject, that's one of the things that we recognize is that everybody has bias. I was watching a, oh, a YouTube thing or a podcast or something there recently, and they were talking about historical things and dealing with Christ. And this one guy asks a question to this other person who he's interviewing, and he says, have you found anybody out there who deals with these facts that's not biased. And my first thought was, what do you mean not biased? And it was kind of interesting because the person he was interviewing said the same thing. She said, well, actually, we all have our biases. 
I think it's important that you recognize what your biases are. And that's true. As I approach the study of Christ, I have a bias. It's a, maybe a different bias than I had when I first started to look into who Christ was. I thought that was a good point that she made. And reason being is I was thinking, what do you mean find somebody that's unbiased? And what he meant was he didn't believe in Jesus and he doesn't think that you can historically back up. Not that Jesus didn't exist, but that he is the Christ and that kind of stuff. And basically what it come down to, if you agreed with him, then he didn't look at you as biased because you weren't a believer. You weren't a follower of it. But I find it ironic because I also see that in him not following Christ, he also is biased toward that direction. But he was looking at himself as being this objective observer and anybody that believes in Jesus as being biased. Bias does not narrow itself down to whether you believe or don't believe. Even if you don't believe, you have a bias that you have to recognize as you look into who Christ is. Otherwise, you can't look at it honestly. And that's what Jesus does for us here is he kind of breaks that down and he says, I'm speaking not of my own authority but the one who sent me. He said other people speak on their own authority, and it's because they're seeking their own glory. Their glory is biasing their opinion of this. Their glory is biasing their research into this. They're selective. We see this all the time. When you look at our politics, and if you, if you flip on a conservative news channel and you flip on a liberal news channel, you'll find that whatever event is being looked at is be, it's being looked at through their bias. They're all covering the same situation. They're all covering the same facts, but they're looking at it through. I remember when I went to college, the head of the photography department at the Bible college that I went to used to be Nixon's personal photographer. And I remember I asked him one day, I said, so all the things that you were at in all those meetings that we heard about in the news, and he said, yeah. And I said, so the news we get, is it true? <laughs> he named about three different publications. And he said, if you read all three of these publications you can kind of get to the nuts and bolts of it. We all have a bias that we filter these things through, and that's what Jesus is telling them. Look, you're stuck on your own glory. That's why you're not believing. And and you, you there's a bias there that has to be recognized if we're going to make right judgment. The second thing that we see is we see that he calls them to judge according to principle and not according to person. Because the religious leaders keep coming up with arguments like, have any of us believed in him? And so they're saying, look, you should, you should be trusting us. We're your religious leaders. We're the authorities and this kind of stuff. None of us have believed in him, so, so he can't be right. He can't be true. And that's, that's a fallacious argument. It does carry uh, some merit that those people are supposed to be in a position where they'd be in authority on that kind of an issue. They also demonstrated that they were very hypocritical and that they were very biased against Christ. What did they use for their arguments? We don't believe in him. Why are you? That is a hollow argument. You know what? Even the Apostle Paul, when he would write to people in the New Testament, in his epistles, he said, search the scriptures. Search them and see if the things that I'm telling you are true. When we go to authorities for answers to questions, we should not just believe it just because they say it is so. We should, we should want to know why. Why do you say it is so? These people should have been calling on religious leaders um, because the people are noticing, boy, he's speaking openly and they're not getting rid of him. They're not putting him to death. Do they know that he's the Christ and they're just not telling us yet? And they should have held their feet to the fire. Why don't you believe him? Look at all these miracles that he's doing. Why don't we believe him? Why isn't he the Christ? You see, you've got to look at the principles that are involved in it, not just the people that are making the statement. 
The truth is found in principles. It's not found in, in who believes it and who doesn't. You know who's the better example for this is Nicodemus. Because remember Nicodemus, we came across him before in John chapter 3. He came to Jesus at night with questions he wanted to know. He said, we can see in the things that you've done that you have to have come from God. And he wanted to know more about Christ. Nicodemus, at the end of this passage, he's, he's standing up and he's saying, wait a minute, we, do we judge anybody for, before we hear them? Don't we have a bunch of questions to ask him along these lines? And that brings us to the last part, and that is that we need to seek answers and not just questions. I find this a lot. Is that people, uh, people take great comfort, I think, in, in leaving things as a question. Why? Because if you leave it up in the air, if you leave it as a question, then you don't have to act upon the truth. Not only do you not have to act upon the truth, but it seems like there's some level of justification. I know I've talked to people that are saying, no, I, don't really, I haven't really put my faith in Christ. I'm not following Christ, but I'm not against Him. I'm not saying He's not that. I just, I'm just saying I don't know. Like there's some kind of comfort in I don't know. There is no comfort in I don't know. You're still condemned if you stay in I don't know. The only place for salvation is in faith, trusting in Jesus Christ. And so it's not just about raising questions. It's about getting to the answers to those questions. And that's what, as we look through the passage, what do we, what do we find? We find that they are raising legitimate questions. But they're happy to leave them as questions. They ask the question and then they don't pursue the answer. The answers are there. But they don't care enough to dig in to pursue the answers. Now, I've noticed in sharing my faith with people, sometimes people have a... a an issue. Well, I don't know if I can believe because of this, or I don't know if I can believe because of that. And one of the things I've done on occasion is I'll buy them a book. I'll give them a book that addresses that subject in depth. Because I give them the book and I say, you don't read this, and then I'd like to talk about it with you. And when I come back later and say, hey, have you read that book? Well, not, not really. Or I started it, but I haven't finished. Or, you know, they want to leave it as a question. Whereas we need to seek after the answers. And that's exactly what's happening in this passage. The people, first off, they say, well, when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from, but we know where Jesus is from. And Jesus says, yeah, you know where I'm from, as in my family, my background that way, but you don't know who sent me. I'm actually sent from the Father. And so and that, so he is answering their question for him. And then it goes on from there and they say, well, but, but he's from Galilee. No, no prophet comes from Galilee. So what's the deal with that? Well, if you look in the Bible, back in Matthew chapter 4, it says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now the rest of this is found both right here in Matthew and in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people in dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, to them a light has dawned. And so you can look back and find within the prophet Isaiah that there was some teaching about Galilee, and that Galilee would experience this great light that would come, being the Messiah, this light that would come out of that region, out of the area of Galilee. The answer is there for them to find, but they did not pursue it. But then they also said, well, he comes from Galilee. Isn't the Messiah supposed to come from Bethlehem? Well, we all know that Christ was born in Bethlehem. But they didn't bother asking him the question. They just raised it among themselves. 
They said, isn't he supposed to be an ancestor of David? Well, Matthew and Luke both show us the lineage of Jesus Christ that it goes back to King David, that he is a descendant of David. So it's really sad, but all these answers were right there at their fingertips for them to get their questions answered, but they were content to leave it as a question instead of seeking the truth, instead of finding the answers. And you know what? The same is true today. If you have questions about, is Jesus Christ really who He said He is? Is, is the Bible reliable? Can we rely on the Bible? I've got, my, my bookshelf is lined with books of people that dug into that thing. And some of them dug into it as believers. Some of them dug into it as unbelievers and later became believers through their study. And there's a, there's a host of resources that we can look into. But the sad part is that most people are content to raise the question and allow it to remain a question rather than seeking the answers and finding Christ. As we look back in this passage, they'd been arguing over this Sabbath and pursuing Christ to put Him to death for six months. These people were arguing about who Christ was and whether He's the Son of God and whether He should be locked away as as a lunatic or a liar or whether He should be worshiped as Lord. And we've been arguing over that for over 2,000 years. And many people sadly are willing to leave it as a question. Don't Leave it as a question. Seek right judgment. Pursue the knowledge of Christ.